0: Hello, this is Mike Azenko, and welcome to another podcast here. I'm joined today with Professor Peter Fever, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at Duke University. There he is the director of the Triangle Institute of Security Studies and the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy. Among many other things, he's the solo author of two of my favorite books about civil-military relations, Guarding the Guardians, Civilian Control of Nuclear Weapons in the United States, and Armed Servants, Agency, Oversight, and Civil Military Relations. He's also the co author of an, a series of books on civil military relations, which, along with Dick Betts's Soldier, Statesman, and Cold War Crises, uh, informed my doctoral dissertation very greatly. So thank you for those. Um, thank you. In the current issue of Foreign Affairs, Peter also has a co authored response uh, with Hal Brands uh, to a piece by Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer where they call for um, uh, offshore balancing grand strategy. That's in the November, December 2016 issue of Foreign Affairs. Um, In a previous incarnation, Peter was also a special advisor for strategic planning in the National Security Council. And he is a regular contributor to foreignpolicy.com under its shadow government banner. If you simply Google Peter Fever, it's the fourth listing that appears. I actually checked it today. Go there, read everything he's written. Peter, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I have so many things to uh, drill down with you on your work, but you've researched and written on civil military relations for over 30 years, covering everything from permissive action links and the use and release and delegation of nuclear weapons to more broader strategic conversations between civilian and military leaders. What got you started on this research program?
1: Well, I actually backed my way into civil-military relations. I started out uh, doing nuclear weapons. I went to graduate school to, to do a dissertation on the ethics of nuclear deterrence, which was a hot topic in the early 80s. Who was your advisor? Uh, Joe Nye was my oh, wow. advisor, and he was in the process of writing a book that was better than I could do uh, <clears throat> on nuclear ethics. And, and so I quickly decided I, there was nothing left for, for me to say on that subject. Uh, but my, I was interested in nuclear weapons and nuclear command and control issues, and through the Avoiding Nuclear War Project, mm-hmm. which was uh, an influential project at Harvard in the 80s, every year we would g- gather annually and say, another year of good success, we'd need to be funded one more year just to avoid nuclear war one more year. Well, as part of that project, I was assigned to be the research assistant for Uh, a scholar who was going to do the history of permissive action links, Peter Stein, a physicist Mm -hmm. from Cornell. And so Peter and I uh, worked on that project and did the oral history of permissive action links, which was a one of those great ideas uh, that took a while, about uh, 15 years into the Cold War. And just remind
0: people what permissive action links are.
1: These are coded switches that lock a nuclear weapon so that physically possessing the nuclear weapon doesn't mean you're able to explode the nuclear weapon. It blocks the firing. More advanced forms of uh, PALs have timers and and other kinds of self-destruct features. The early PALs were just padlocks that occupied the, right. the part of the, the weapon that would need to be um, uh, assembled. But in the 50s, we didn't have them, and we were deploying increasingly deploying nuclear weapons abroad and closer and closer to the battlefront, and it raised this issue of the use them or lose them mm-hmm. dilemma of nuclear weapons, that, that there would be pressure to use nuclear weapons earlier than you might otherwise want to, because otherwise they'd be lost, and uh, they might even be lost to the enemy or someone else There's also the danger that someone else could use them in an unauthorized way. Permissive action links addressed the um, myriad problems like this. They were a great idea, but they took a while to be discovered. And we were writing about how did they come about? What was the confluence of, of factors that produced them? Well, as we were studying permissive action links, I realized that this was a technical solution to a civil military problem, that at its heart, pals were addressing the delegation problem within the civil-military relations, that the civilian might be in charge, but would require his agent, the military, to do his bidding. Right. And I didn't think of it in principal agent terms at the time, but I thought of it in civil-military terms. And, and so out of that came the dissertation idea, which was Guarding the Guardians, which looked at civilian control of nuclear weapons more broadly, but with a focus on custody.
0: And you've shifted this uh, research agenda many different ways over time. Uh, Civil-Military Relations are always with us. We have a large army. We do a lot of things, Uh, you know, 1.6 million active duty, I think, right now. So there's always something to to be worked on. How do you decide which areas to take the research?
1: Well, after the f- after the first book, um, I like everybody else in the field got into the nuclear proliferation business. Mm-hmm. So it turns out the problems that the U.S. were wrestling with in the fifties were the kinds of problems that new nuclear nations, Pakistan, uh, India, others that might be coming on the pike down the pike in the nineties, that we were worried about that they would have to wrestle with. So what were lessons learned from U.S. civil, military, and nuclear control? experience what were lessons that could be applied to right. new nuclear nations and so that's that was my second project it was an interesting time to come of age because i started my r- dissertation at the height of the new cold war the second cold war I, I, that fall, the Able Archer—that sure. uh, was the fall, my first fall in graduate school—and of course, I ended it with the Berlin Wall coming down, and and so a dissertation formed during the height of the Cold War had to prepare me for a life wow. of scholarship after the Cold War. So, like many others, we you you translated what you knew about the Cold War to other issues. For us, it was it was um, proliferation, but then it was actually a, a stint. Thanks to the CFR and the International Affairs Fellowship, a great program. Plug for you, great. For you all. I'll take it. Uh, I got to serve in the Clinton White House as a, one of the lowly directors for defense policy and arms control and worked on a variety of issues, some nuclear, but also um, some civil military. And of course, the Clinton White House was a fascinating vantage point from which to look at civil military relations. And, and what I Realized as I was sitting there was that the daily day-to-day interactions of the senior civilian, senior military leadership was not explained well by the reigning theory of the day, which mm-hmm. was the Soldier in State, the book by Sam Huntington, who was on my dissertation committee, a very wow. important influence in my own uh, development as a scholar, and a book that I've relied on heavily, but I recognized it just didn't seem to match up well with what I was seeing. And, and so it, I came out of that fellowship wanting to look at civil-military relations again, but in a, in a fresh way that would make a little bit more sense, I think, to how, it's being done, how it was being done in the 90s.
0: And this leads to your second prominent book, uh, Harvard University Press, Armed Servants, Agency Oversight and Civil-Military Relations, Talk about Huntington's thesis and what problems you had with it, and then why you chose the principal-agent approach uh, to better understand this relationship.
1: Well, it's an impressive book, Soldier in the State. It's still in print, and it's- um, 1957. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. over 50 or nearly 50 years. Uh, no, um, no 60, 60 yeah. nearly 60 years old. It's impressive, and it captures well the way the average military officer Conceives of civil military relations, partly because Huntington's model informs how it's taught at right. PME. Absolutely. So at the war at at West Point or at mid grade uh, PME inst- installations. Um, PME
0: is professional military education for everybody. Yes,
1: forgive my acronyms. <laughs> if you are in this business long enough uh, with the military, you end up developing the acronym d- disease. So they are teaching the Huntington model, uh, but. Even without teaching it, it's how a professional military officer would think. A professional military officer's self-conception is, especially in the U.S., of <laughs> course, the United, that's the United States so for that acronym, the, a U.S. professional military officer is not thinking about coups, voluntarily subordinates himself or herself to the Constitution, to civilian control but also views him or herself as a professional developing expertise who brings something unique to the table and that for that expertise to have its needed impact on policy and on the outcome of whatever national security problem you're working that expertise needs to be respected and indeed acknowledged with an autonomous zone where it is responsible the military expertise is ruling. So the Huntington model is that military exchange voluntarily, subordination to the civilian on strategic questions in exchange for the civilian leaders delegating autonomy to the military on operational and tactical civilian decisions. Civilians
0: set the framework and the boundaries and the military executes.
1: Right. One general put it this way. The civilian tells us where we want to go and leaves the driving to us. Right. Now that captures the way the military think about the problem. It does not capture the way the civilians, civilian leaders in the United States anyway, the way U.S. civilian leaders do civil military relations on a daily basis. Uh, there may be a dividing line, but the civilian leader gets to decide where the dividing line is, and it's where he or she says it is, and it may change on a daily basis. It may change with technology. So permissive action links was an encroachment on military autonomy that made sense because it was a nuclear problem. did not make sense to the generals of the day who said, you should trust us. Of course we're not going to use the weapons in an unauthorized way. You don't need a PAL to guarantee that, but it made sense to the civilians. So civilians are constantly drawing the line closer into military matters, and so in the business, what the military would call micromanage, mm-hmm. micromanaging military affairs. Uh, this produces a much more conflictual relationship than the Huntington model would uh, admit of, and yet it also in the Cold War experience, produced success. We, right. we won the Cold War. And Huntington's model didn't allow for those two outcomes of heavy civilian interference, but also eventual success. And so I my, my effort was to come up with a, a, a more deductively grounded model that would allow for that outcome of micromanagement, but also good outcomes on national security.
0: And then principal agent theory, how do you adopt that and apply it?
1: So that is uh, something from the economics literature that uh, in the 90s, as I was wrestling with this problem, uh, was being brought into political science primarily by uh, folks who studied Congress and and the way Congress uh, controlled the bureaucracy. So the Congress would establish a bureaucracy, an agency, a regulatory agency, but then use principal agent techniques in order to try to rein maintain congressional will over how the agency performed, and of course the agency was trying the opposite, to have autonomy, and that literature was looking at it in civilian uh, sectors, and I said that captures well the dynamic I saw at the White House uh, in the civil-military domain, so I applied the insights there. wasn't the first one, Debbie um, Avant. was one of the first to bring it in to apply it to Civil Mill, but I um, uh, expanded on that, and it, it has some off-putting jargon. It, it talks about the military shirking, and which is when their preferences prevail over the civilian, and they're working when the civilian preferences prevail over the military. That jargon, which makes sense in the political science world, is off-putting to the sure. average uh, military audience. Um, but... I've had quite a few um, military officers who've gone back to school to do their own dissertations or to do their own advanced study, and they find that the model works well in in, in dealing with the problems that they, they're they studying, and so I think it uh, has some chance uh, over time of uh, of being an alternative choice for understanding U.S. Uh, civil mill and maybe even a superior one. But uh, yeah, even if I lift to a hundred, I won't sell as many copies as, <laughs> as Sam did with soldiers. But it, it
0: is—I see it assigned at you know at Leavenworth. I see it assigned at uh, Carlisle. You see it assigned at Quantico. I mean, more and more of the services recognize its value, and it's assigned alongside mm-hmm. Sam Huntington's book often. Um, coming to more contemporary times, we spoke with Corey Shockey last month about a great, excellent volume she had with General Jim Mattis, Warriors and Citizens: American Views of Our Military, to which you were a contributor. Uh, a co-author of one of the chapters. Um, Corey has very strong opinions, as do you, about retired general and flag officers participating in politics. Uh, These former generals and flag officers like to say, well, we subordinated our constitutional rights for 35 years and now we're citizens, so can't we speak our minds? But you have, uh, among many others, said that there's a problem with this because it erodes the fundamental civil military institutional relations. What are the problems you have with what you're seeing in the campaign today with the general's participation?
1: Well, first, let's, let's be clear about some boundaries. Uh, the retired military have the right to do this. So we're not talking sure. about uh, whether they have the right to do it. We're talking about whether it is right, whether it's good for them to do this, and in particular, whether it's good for the military profession writ large, which, of course, they devoted their professional life to advancing. And my argument is well, they may have the right to do it, but it's not a good thing that they're doing it. And the thing that they're doing is having one toe in the partisan political world, but the other toe uh, in the cloaking themselves in the respect and authority that the military institution in the United States does enjoy by virtue of. It being nonpartisan. And so they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. If they went all the way over to the other side and ran for office as a partisan candidate, as Dwight Eisenhower did successfully, as Wes Clark did not successfully, Al Haig did not successfully, when you're running as a candidate, then you are partisan. Right. And you're no longer accorded the respect that the. is given to nonpartisan institutions. Um, and that's, that's good for America. Dwight Eisenhower was a fine president. So there, I want more veterans to run for office. That's fine. It's veterans, particularly the more senior ones. So if it's a, a retired lieutenant, it doesn't really matter. But when your first name, even in retirement, is general or admiral.
0: Not John or Mike. Not John or Mike.
1: When your first name is General, then you are retaining some of the authority of the military institution into retirement. And indeed, that's why the campaigns want you. They're not interested in John Nathman's endorsement in 2012. They were interested in Admiral Nathman's. They, They were not interested in Mike Flynn's endorsement of Donald Trump. It was General Flynn's endorsement of Donald Trump. And, of course, uh, in the recent debates between Trump and, and Clinton, both of them repeatedly emphasized which general or admiral had uh, endorsed them. It was, uh, it was a blatantly partisan act, but done by trading on the respect of the military institution. And that respect derives in part because the military is recognized as nonpartisan, so you're, you're polluting the waters.
0: And as the Gallup polls show all the time, it's the most respected institution within the United States.
1: It is. It, there used to be another institution that was rivaling the uh, military, and that was the Supreme Court. Supreme Court sure. And in the last 10 years, the Supreme Court's uh, numbers have plummeted not coincidentally i would say at the same time that perceptions of how partisan the supreme court right. is has increased and so that's a warning for the military if you become viewed by the public as a partisan institution the way sadly americans see the supreme court today then respect for the military goes down now there but there's another there's another problem here which is that our system depends on The commander-in-chief, knowing that on day one, minute one, once they have taken the oath, they are commander-in-chief and the military will obey their lawful orders. Article
0: 2, Section 2.
1: It's quite explicit. And that they can trust the military and so confide in the military that they can bring the military into their inner circle for the debates about what do we do in Syria, what do we do uh, vis-a-vis Putin, whatever. And that the the military in the room will not use that information two years, four years hence, to say, oh, I couldn't possibly support this person Mm -hmm. for president. I was in the room with them. Trust me, you do not want this person to be your Uh, commander-in-chief. When... Senior military become prominent in partisan endorsements. They are complicating the job for their sitting um, um, successors, who are military, and and the political advisors in the White House are going to be looking with a fish eye at the military, wondering which is the next one that's going to do this to us. And so, uh, it 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 compromises the integrity of this uh, the military advisory process, and of course. Uh, We need the best military advice uh, advisory process that we can have in these difficult times. So why compromise it? Now, one of the interesting things is I'm not sure it has a big effect electorally.
0: You've looked at surveys of prospective voters, and they don't really care.
1: Well, when you do a survey experiment, which is, you know, a a, a limited treatment, um, it's not hours and hours and hours of TV ads bombarding the thing, but... Um, uh, but it's also not hours and hours of TV ads with dueling generals competing each other. So the what what would happen if we were able to measure the electoral impact more um, precisely? I don't know. But but from the tests we have been doing, it's it's a it's a small effect, small enough that a campaign desperate for every mm. edge right. will be unwilling to let it go, but not so large that it is worth doing to outweigh the other downsides of it. And so it's a fool's errand to try to persuade campaigns not to do this. I've tried. I've talked to re- my Republican uh, political friends. I've talked to my Democratic political friends. I've explained this problem to them. They get it, but they say they cannot unilaterally disarm. If they, and notice the pressure, when when Trump released his numbers, uh, uh, Clinton had to release her numbers. Right. And then Clint, uh, Trump had to, uh come back with a larger number the the campaign pressures are too great so to solve this problem you have to work the supply side of it you talk and that's happening now you talk to uh senior military officers while they're serving you talk about the challenges that this practice develops and then you talk to the retired military and they Uh, You explained that they don't have to say yes. They can say no. They can advise campaigns, and of course that's very helpful for them to give their professional uh, advice, but to say no to the partisan endorsements. Increasingly that's happening. So while the endorsements are very prominent this cycle, the luster of the lists is not as great as it was in 2012, if you just compare. I think that's partly perhaps disenchantment with both candidates, but I think it's also and a f- uh, result of efforts by a lot of people to try to bring this genie back inside the bottle.
0: Let me ask you a big picture question. Is Whenever there's a apparent rupture between senior civilian and military officials that is reported in the press, like the famous General Barry McCaffrey not being addressed uh, by a White House staffer in 1993, uh, the revolt of the generals and Donald Rumsfeld in the mid-2000s, um, the uh, voluntary uh, stepping down of General McChrystal as a result of the Rolling Stone interview and some of the advisors around him. And then they say, well, there's a civil military crisis mm-hmm. between the White House and the Pentagon or combatant commanders. I mean, these are just events that have become publicly known, so we consider them crises. But what do, you th- do you think the United States could have an actual civil military crisis, and what might that look like?
1: Yeah, the the three you mentioned, I don't think are crises. Uh, some of them are are just tempests in a teapot. Sure. I think when McCaffrey uh, had that incident in the White House, that that probably was taken out of uh, blown out of proportion. The underlying friction between the Clinton White House, particularly the civilian uh, and the Powell and the jo- Joint Chiefs of Staff, that was not uh, made up. That was right. real. And that came close to a crisis. I'm not sure I would call it a crisis. The a better example of a crisis was MacArthur's um, sure. f- uh, firing and and the 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 steps of insubordination that he was walking up to about to do, uh, and then crossed the line and 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 had the chiefs not backed uh, Truman in that that would have been a very dangerous crisis. As it was, the Chiefs were fully on board, and so uh, it was quickly resolved, and I think it had the opposite effect. It actually reinforced and strengthened civilian control. There's uh, dogs that didn't bark. So in 2006, when President Bush was trying to figure out what to do in Iraq, uh, he recognized first that we needed to look at the strategy with fresh eyes, and then realized this strategy that we were following wasn't working, and then was trying to find an alternative that he thought would have a better chance of working. He settled on an option, the surge, which he eventually uh, put in place. But he took a lot of time bringing the military on board. He could have just ordered the military. This is what we're going to do. He could have rushed that review process Mm -hmm. and gotten there earlier. But that uh, might have provoked a civil military crisis because the surge was not what his military chain of command, his assigned advisors initially recommended. It it came uh, uh, from the civilian side of the house. Uh, and eventually, on January 10th, when the president made his speech, he could say that all of his advisors support this. Right. And by that point, it was true. Right. But it was, it, it was months of cajoling and working with the military to bring them to that point. Um, and, and so had he done what I was urging him <laughs> to do and move more quickly, uh, he might have provoked a crisis. One of those rare times where, as an academic, you get to see your your theoretical model tested in, in, and then you decide, you know, there's a better way than what I was arguing before I came.
0: But when you think, when the revolt of the generals happened, uh, it's retired officers, right. or, or officers who have just recently retired in, in some of those instances, and the perception is that they're speaking for their active-duty counterparts. Right, right. Do you find that to be true, or is that a misperception? Sometimes
1: it is. No. So they're, the, you're referring to the revolt of the retired generals right. in the spring of 2006. And earlier I was, I was talking about the revolt that didn't happen of the active-duty right. uh, military in the December of 2006. They did not revolt. They went along with the president's decision. But in the spring, a number of very prominent um, uh, generals who had served— under rumsfeld in the first bush term uh came out and within you know a week of each other were giving interviews or writing op-eds that made the same point which was that rumsfeld has so uh screwed up the iraq war he has to go and this uh this quickly got dubbed uh the revolt of the generals the media played it up it was put the white house under some pressure um and, of course, people thought that these generals were speaking on behalf of others who couldn't speak up. They were replaying in their mind General Shinseki. Uh, maybe right. there's others like yeah. uh, other, uh, others like General Shinseki who are um, inside the military and, and feeling the same frustration but are not allowed to speak, and these folks outside who stay in close touch with them, maybe they're speaking on their behalf. Um, I don't think there was that much resentment of Rumsfeld along the lines that the generals were talking about by that point in 2006. By that point, what they were advocating uh, was what Rumsfeld was advocating. What the retired generals were advocating was what Rumsfeld was advocating. Uh, and so the, the generals were a little bit out of touch with where the strategic ferment was. And indeed, the uh, the the challenge inside was uh, a very different one: civilians uh, who wanted to try the surge, mm-hmm. uh, and and military who were, were resistant to it. So the generals were out of phase, out of sync with that, and they also had the paradoxical effect of making it impossible to fire Rumsfeld. So their right. purported policy goal was to get Rumsfeld fired,
0: who offered his resignation multiple times, apparently.
1: but but the president uh, said. Uh, and that once that came out, he could not do it. Otherwise, that would, that would be corrosive of civilian control. If, it, if retired generals complaining about a sec def could get the president to fire the sec def, that would be a problem and that would politicize it. So, so they bought Rumsfeld another six months <laughs> of, um, of job security.
0: And two more questions. One, I mean, you're an academic who does work that informs policy directly and you served in policy positions. How often do you see academic findings or debates that are commonly among academics and social sciences find their way into actual policy discussions in the the White House or the NSC?
1: More often than you would think, but almost never with the bibliographic citation that you would want uh, if you're an academic. So um, the, the debate in the Clinton administration over the expansion of NATO and, the focus on enlarging the community of democracies was was informed by the democratic peace literature that was prominent in political science at the time. I don't think any of my colleagues, well, maybe Tony Lake, who was a political sure. scientist, but very few of my colleagues could have uh, talked about the bibliographic uh, and academic um, nuances of the debate, but, they unders- but the ideas were um, permeating. Uh, and so um, I, I think there's and there's ample opportunity for the tools of of political science are, uh, the and analytic tools of political science to inform the inside strategy making. When we were working on this Iraq strategy review that led to the surge, part of what we did was just basic social science analytics. What are the assumptions? what's the theory? what's the theory that's guiding our, Iraq strategy 2005-2006, what are the assumptions of those, how um, much confidence do we have in those assumptions today? And, And one of the interesting, I remember vividly doing this exercise and realizing that the assumptions that we had laid down a year before, we had explicitly laid out, here are our assumptions in the fall of 2005, and then in August, September 2006, we take that same list and we do a check Against it, and we realized we didn't believe any of these assumptions were true anymore. And and the conclusion was well, it's a conclusion that your strategy isn't going to work, right? Right. We no longer believed we the you know the civilian uh, um, staffers doing this project uh, no longer believed that this strategy could work. So. Uh, that's the kind of training that we give academic political scientists. So I think there's lots of room to bridge the gap. Right. Uh, where academics get in trouble is when they bring their uh, jargon, when they bring their language, when they bring their presentational style. From the academy into the policy world, then it doesn't
0: work. Giving the job the job talk at the it's, Pentagon.
1: It's <laughs> it, you almost have to invert it. So in an academic uh, talk, you focus on your method, and you um, try to exaggerate how novel your <laughs> ideas are. And if you're doing a policy argument, you do not focus on the method, and you actually try to make it seem like what you're advocating has been the president's idea all along. It's not novel at all. The president was here well before you made this proposal. So it's the inverse uh, right. of, an, of an academic talk.
0: The final question we ask everybody is if you could go back to the you know, midpoint of Ronald Reagan's first administration and speak to the young version of you entering graduate school, what sort of advice would you give yourself? What advice do you give to young political scientists today?
1: Well, I I tell them that um, managing work family is the harder part, the hardest part of of being uh, an academic who's also working in the policy world. That the the competing demands on your time are are heavy uh, and don't always match up well with work family balance. So I'm sounding a little bit like Emory Slaughter, yeah. I guess. But yeah. but that that's that's been a, a challenge uh, for for thirty years. I'd also say that um, uh, I, ha- I have benefited greatly from maintaining good relations uh, with the people, even uh, that I was you know, sitting in the office with my uh, graduate Carol, but along the way, uh, trying at as much, there's a Bible verse that says, as, as much as it is possible that you live at peace with all men and women, and that has stood me in good stead because the people uh, political world is so bitter, and the partisanship is infecting the policy world, but the policy world works well when those, you can have strong principle disagreements, but that you can still talk to each other, you can still argue with each other, and you can still reach consensus and see, you know, on this point, that other guy might be right, or he's persuaded me that I need to revise my position. To do that requires friends across the aisle, it requires empathy across Absolutely. the aisle, and uh, and maintaining friendly relations uh, across the aisle, across different uh, stovepipes in political science, the quantita- quants versus the qualitative uh, field, all of these tribal divisions, but if you can maintain uh, friendships and connections across them and empathy across them so you understand how the other side thinks, then I think you have a leg up. Uh, in in de- strategy debates, and so that's something I would uh, want to remind the younger me, and I certainly emphasize that with my own students today.
0: That's a beautiful message to end on. Thank you so much. Again, Peter Fever, professor of political science and public policy at Duke University. Go read his stuff at foreignpolicy.com and uh, everything else that he publishes. Peter, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.